this world, this society, this government wants you to not notice beauty, wants right. you to not take time and actually daydream and actually imagine a world that is kind and good and beautiful. Mm -hmm. So you have to be purposeful in doing it. Nobody's going to lead you to it. I can only do so much for my students, but ultimately, after the class, they have to also do it. So what I tell my students is be able to identify by sight five birds, five trees, five animals that are in your town. That just start there. That's an, everybody can do that. All of us can do that in this class, in this auditorium. Have you ever had a slice of cake that had been soaked in a sort of syrup? Maybe rose syrup, maybe lemon. It's my favorite sort of cake. Dense and rich at the same time. It's almost not cake anymore. It's been transformed. The crumb plumbed by the weight of liquid joy. Every one of Amy Nesu Kumatatil's poems, which she shared at Sal's May 2018 poetry series reading, was like that for me. Dense and light at the same time, sweet and weighty. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Associate Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, and you're listening to Sal on Air, a collection of talks from the world's best writers from over 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. Amy Nezukumatatil is the author of a sparkling new book of nature essays called World of Wonders. The book was recently named a finalist for the Kirkus Prize in nonfiction. She is also the author of four award-winning poetry collections, most recently Oceanic from Copper Canyon Press. After her reading from Oceanic, a conversation follows between Amy and Pacific Northwest poet Jane Wong. Jane is the author of Overpour, in the forthcoming book, How to Not Be Afraid of Everything. Let's listen, Amy writes in a poem from Oceanic. Quote, how this planet hums with so much wing, fur, and fin. End quote. Indeed, let's listen. Let's soak it in. Let's swim in her words. This is Sal on Air. This has been one of my bucket list reading series um, on, in the world, actually. So it is nothing short of an honor to be here, um, to finish off the season with you all. Um, thank you all, uh, in particular, Copper Canyon, for making this happen. Jane, I'm so excited to, to chat with you in a little bit. And um, uh, Michael and Elena, uh, working with you at Copper Canyon is is such a dream beyond belief. Um, I was I spent the morning at uh, the Seattle Aquarium, and Michael, when I got the call from you, I was at the Georgia Aquarium, um, and that changed my life. So thank you, thank you. Um, I'm going to read um, mostly poems from Oceanic, and um, a couple oldies and a couple brand new ones. So uh, I wanted to start off with this poem, and it's a poem about phobias. Um, and I'm the daughter of a retired psychiatrist. And back in the 80s, we would get the Sears catalog. My students now don't know the Sears catalog, but it was a, it was a big to-do when you get it at this big like toy catalog in the mail of anything, not just toys, furniture, anything like that. But the second most exciting day, uh, mail day in the um, Nezuka Matatel household, was when something called the phobia list came to our door. 
Um, they don't do that anymore, hard copy, but it used to be as thick as a phone book. And what it was, it was the year's um, collection of all the phobias that have been treated that year um, and named. So 10-year-old Amy, you know, and my younger sister would just race and we'd be laughing and giggling at all these phobias. It'd be phobias like um, the fear of peanut butter stuck to the roof of your mouth, um, the fear of bald people, the fear of the Pope, um, all kinds of naughty X-rated ones. Um, fast forward years later, I realize that, uh, you know, I'm actually a little bit ashamed of myself for laughing at all of at the phobia list because I actually also realized that everybody who was in that that um, journal, um, it's now online, um, was somebody who was brave enough to say that they needed help, that they had a problem, and they wanted to be treated for it. So now, of course, I feel so guilty. Um, but if you don't have anything to do tonight, you can look up thephobialist.com. <laughs> And it's just, and don't do it if you have a lot, if anything, if you have a lot of chores or something to do or homework, because um, you will be on there for hours. Uh, one phobia I chose to write about is from that list, and I remember being taken with it from when I was in sixth grade. This is called hepatomonstrosis capetalophobia, which is the fear of long words. And I'm going to use the longest word in the English um, dictionary, so you might hear me stumble over it. So just as a heads up. Hepatomonstrosis capetalophobia. On the first day of classes, I secretly beg my students, please do not be afraid of me. I know my last name on your semester schedule is chopped off or misspelled or both. I can't help it. I know the panic of too many consonants rubbed up against each other, no room for vowels to fan some air into the room of a box marked instructor. You want something to really startle you? Try tapping the ball of roots of a potted tomato plant into your cupped hand one spring, only to find a small black toad who kicks and blinks his cold eye at you, the sun, or a gnat. Be afraid of the x-rays for your teeth or lung, and pray for no dark spots. You may have, okay, here it is, pneumono-ultramicroscopic silico-volcanoconiosis, or cold lung. Be afraid of money spiders tiptoeing across your face while you sleep on a sweet, fat couch. But don't be afraid of me, my last name, what accent dulls itself on, its, on my molars. I promise I will tell jokes. I promise I will help you see the gleam of the beak of a mohawked cockatiel. I will lecture on luminescent sweeps of ocean full of tiny dinoflagellates oozing green light when disturbed. I promise dark gatherings of toadfish and comical shrimp just when you think you are all alone in this class, hoping to stay somehow afloat. This next one, um, I, you know, Rebecca had told me um, a little bit earlier that this is the 30th year, is that right, of, um, of SAL uh, lecture series. So in honor of that, I wanted to read um, 30 haiku that I wrote for this. <laughs> I just, sorry, I couldn't do it without just laughing. I'm not going to do that. <laughs> I have no poker face. I wanted to just keep going on and see if people would start getting up or something. No, I'm not going to read 30 haiku for you. Um, 
I just wanted to. <laughs> this one, though, <laughs> I'm going to read. You guys were so sweet. Some of you started clapping, though. <laughs> that's, so, that's so lovely. Uh, this is called In Praise of My Manicure. And in this, in this uh, poem, um, I'm going to mention, actually, that uh, my father is from South India. And one of the dances from South India, it's a classical dance. It's called the Kathakali dance. Um, and I was always a show ashamed. I grew up in predominantly white, small-town America. So when I would get these magazines and, um, you know, uh, pictures of these beautiful dancers, uh, I would be kind of like hiding them under, you know, books or throwing them under my bed and stuff when my girlfriends would come over. Um, so embarrassed. And then I actually just met um, um, this wonderful um, Indian poet um, named Tishani Doshi last uh, week. It was also coming out with a, a book from Copper Canyon um, this fall. And she was telling me that she, um, amongst her friends in India growing up, was so embarrassed of reading these magazines of Patrick Swayze. <laughs> and uh, she would hide them under her, her desk. So um, anyway, uh, this is called In Praise of My Manicure. Because I was taught all my life to blend in, I want my fingernails to blend out. Like preschoolers who stomp their rain boots in a parking lot, like coins who wink at you from the scatter bottom of a fountain, like red starfish who wiggle a finger dance at you, like green-faced Kathakali dancers who shape their hands into a bit of a hello with an anjali. I tell you from now on, me and my children and their children will hold four fingers up. A palavam, a fresh sprout with no more shame, no more shrink. And if the bright colors and glittered stars of my fingernails scare you, I will shape my fingers into a sar parisusu, my favorite, a snake, sliding down my wrist and into each finger. Just look at these colors, so marvelous. So fabulous, say the two snakes where my brown arms once were. See that movement near my elbow, near my wrist? A snake heart can slide up and down the length of its entire body. You'll never be able to catch my pulse. You'll never be able to catch my shine. Um, I mentioned my mother. Actually, my parents are retired now and living it up in central Florida. But um, there was one year, because my mother, we were living um, from mental hospital to mental hospital to mental hospital um, every four years. And, um, you know, my, my parents decided, what, so we lived on the grounds of these mental institutions. So um, many times we were the first uh, kids who lived there. And so um, I actually, you know, it's, it's funny, I... Um, now, as a parent, I look back at, at that childhood and think, how did you do this, Mom? You know, um, my younger sister and I would be riding our bikes in front of the, the barbed wire kind of area. Um, that was the, she was a psychiatrist for the criminally insane. So, you know, I'd be like, oh, these, these men are so friendly. They're waving to us, you know. Um, and, you know, in, in hindsight, my, my, my parents, when I asked them about it, my parents said it was the actual safest place for you to be you were always watched. You were always on security. Um, and, you know, we were taught to, you know, be aware of the, the nice man in the tower. That was a sniper um, watching over my sister and I. So um, we didn't know any of this, of course, but uh, it made for an interesting childhood. Um, until my parents said, finally, forget it. We can't keep doing this to our girls. We're going to actually have a home um, here and... Uh, 
there was one year where my mom did not live with us. And uh, it was during our fourth grade year. And uh, because she was finishing up a, a, a contract in, in one of these, and it was a very dangerous kind of situation. Um, we're talking like Hannibal Lecter type kind of people. So she didn't want um, us girls anywhere near that area. This is called, this is the only time I've written about that year. And this is called When I Was a Vampire. And I wanted to ask you all, too, I think this audience will know it. Um, do you know, um, who was the main actor who played Dracula in the old-timey movies? Do you guys know? Bram, Bram, Stoker, Bram Stoker was the author. Bella Lugosi, yes. Okay, good, good, good. I, I was reading to a high school um, a couple of weeks ago, and nobody in the audience knew. Um, and they were saying, um, I can't even remember the name now. He was like some millennial. And I was like, no, that's not Dracula. It's Bella Lugosi. It's Bella Lugosi. This is called When I Was a Vampire. In fourth grade, I wanted to be a man. I mean, I wanted to be a vampire for Halloween, and I only knew them as men, like Dracula with much might and muscle in his neck. I liked the way my friends looked at me when I first swore out loud during a soccer game, the wild pop of delight and horror when I let loose with it. My mother didn't live with us that year. That, and learning to swear, felt like blood in the corner of my mouth. I checked out theater books from the library to learn how to shade a sunken cheek and studied biographies of Bella Lugosi. My mother lived 900 miles away that year. I waved a shopping list full of items for my poor Indian father who could never find them. Spirit gum, liquid latex, fake blood, Gelled like jam, I told him. My mother was absent. I wanted to be a vampire. I learned how to powder my brown self white with poofs of baby powder all the way up to my slicked hairline. Plastic fangs for a dollar. I wore my own crisp white Oxford, a smear of banana ketchup on the collar. I walked into school straight as a licorice stick. My mother missed the Halloween parade. When she saw the pictures weeks later, she asked my father, how on earth could he do this, let me out of the house like that? My friends won't believe me now, but I was so close to being a man. When I wore my fangs and clicked them open, I felt a shiver of blood just underneath my gums. I came to poetry fairly late compared to my peers. Um, uh, I, you know, learned to, you know, whenever I was trotted out to doctors' parties and stuff like that, since I was three years old, I learned to be able to, you know, if I said, I'm going to be a doctor just like mommy, I learned that I would get applause. Um, and that fall, I basically just kept chasing that applause until junior year in college um, when I realized a couple things, not the least of which is that I had no business being in pre-med. Um, but also, I was a chemistry major, and uh, one of the red flags should have uh, been um, I was never able to light my own Bunsen burner. <laughs> I made it somehow to organic chemistry, and I'd never lit my own Bunsen burner. I always begged my lab partner to do that. Um, but I always tell my parents, I, uh, I saved so much. My greatest gift to humanity was not being a doctor because I saved so many lives um, in that way. 
anyway, when I told my parents that I wanted to, in fact, not study chemistry, but to study poetry, and that I wanted to try my hand at writing poetry, uh, my mother did not speak to me for three days. My very, very stoic but loving um, father uh, wept. Um, which I can laugh about now, but that was a very kind of tumultuous moment to kind of break this to my parents, who they were like, but you told us you wanted to be a doctor. I was like, you guys wanted me to be a doctor. You know, that kind of thing. Anyway, anyway, um, so the rest of spring break, junior year, was a little bit tumultuous. When I was heading back to school, my dad sat me down. My mother was still not talking to me. My dad sat me down and he said, you know, Amy, I can't do his accent, but he's like, you know, Amy, if you could promise, your mother and I have no idea what you're doing with your life, but if you could promise us that you will always feel like a student on this planet, then you have our blessing, you know, that kind of thing. And, you know, I didn't need my parents' blessing, um, but I wanted my parents' blessing, you know. Um, as a daughter of immigrants, it meant the world to me. Um, and honestly, I've never left a college campus basically since then. And uh, now they are my biggest, biggest fans. When I became um, the youngest uh, the youngest English professor in the state of New York to achieve the rank of full professor, I wanted to kind of, um, I know, thank you, thank you very much. Um, I wanted to thank my parents for being, now they're so embarrassing, they're so cringeworthy, anytime I publish anything, they're like, look at my daughter, you know, to their retirement community, it's so embarrassing. I wanted to bring them up to New York City, because they had never been there before, and they um, didn't want to see the Statue of Liberty, they didn't want to do any of the touristy stuff, they only had one destination in mind, and this was a very seedy restaurant. They wanted to have this soup that is illegal to serve in the United States, but they found a restaurant in New York City that serves it. Um, but in order to partake of it, you have to sign away your life, essentially, on a waiver, the reason why is that if you don't cook it properly, you will die. <laughs> and so watching my parents here, I was like, this is supposed to be their treat for um, supporting me and that kind of thing. They were just happily signing their life away right before my eyes. <laughs> the Japanese have a proverb about the soup, and it goes, those who don't eat fugu soup are so stupid, but those who don't eat fugu soup are even more stupid. This is called the Fugu Soup Blues. And I saw one of these today, this morning, um, at the aquarium. So, Nothing good can come out of eating something named porcupine fish. It's like playing Russian roulette when you cook it. The pulse of toxin in its sweet little body can kill 30 men. But this. This is the most delicious of all fishes. The sweet meat, almost sugared, and the salty broth mix. Man, it's worth almost any death. Can you taste the pure poison hidden in the skin folds? Can you forget what you eat may kill you, even as you wipe your mouth with the back of your hand? Consider the way the porcupine fish dies. It's the only fish that can close its eyes. When a cleaver comes near its head, it even winces. Sushi chefs complain of the noise it makes on the chopping block, like crying, even though fishermen try to stitch its small mouth shut. And all that blinking. Don't we expect fish eyes to be dead black and dumb? You cannot stop this hunger. When something this good can kill you, every pinprick of white pain just adds more flavor.
But when the waiter with the curvy smile asks if you want seconds, please, please, I beg of you, set down your spoon. This is called Naming the Heartbeats. I've become the person who says darling, who says sugar pie, honey bunch, snuggle bear, and that's just for my children. What, my, what I call my husband is unprintable. You're welcome. I am his sweetheart, and finally, finally, I answer to his call and his alone. Animals are named for people, places, or perhaps sometimes Latin. Plants invite names for colors or plant parts. But when you get a group of heartbeats together, you get names that call out into the evening's first radiance of planets. And a quiver of cobras, a maelstrom of salamanders, an audience of squid, or an ostentation of peacocks. But what is it called when creatures on this earth curl and sleep? When, moon, when shadows of moons we don't yet know brush across our faces? And what is the name for the movement we make when we wake, sliping hand or claw or wing across our faces, like trying to remember a path or a river we've only visited in our dreams? Thank you. Um, I always say that kind of the, if you want to find the worst of humanity, it hides away in um, internet anonymous comment boxes. That's where you can find the, wor- the people who give reviews that just hide behind an alias or just don't have to sign their name at all. They're the worst of humanity. Those of you who've seen like YouTube comments or anything like that. Um, I'm trying to plan a trip with my entire family to the Taj Mahal. Um, and I have never been to the Taj Mahal, so I feel kind of like a bad Indian in some ways. Like, a lot of my friends say, like, I can't believe you've never been to the Taj Mahal. And um, I'm like, you know, it's like never being to Key West. It's a big, big country, you know, that kind of thing. So, um, but now I just realized when I was kind of doing research for this, you can actually rate and review the world's wonders. Um, so you can rate and review like the pyramid, the Great Pyramids. You can rate and review the Great Wall of China, um, all anonymously, right? So this is a found poem. I did not do anything except for just break lines. This is all you could check beyond this. This is all found anonymously on the internet. This is called One Star Reviews of the Taj Mahal. Too bad it was man-made. As a standalone attraction, I guess it's passable, but compared to the McDonald's at Celebration Mall, it's just meh. This isn't for Indians. It's so tacky. The garden is also very basic. Everything here is just basic. We were ripped off by asking local shopkeepers to hold our bags for us, and you will be swarmed. Swarmed by street vendors and children, and swarmed by camels and parking lot goons and children, and cheap cameramen and stalker tourist guides and camel children and footwear thieves. So I'm just saying, 
Mind your belongings here. I don't know. It's just an old love story. But is it love or hate? Can you believe I was told to get out with my selfie stick? <laughs> don't even think about seeing it under a full moon. Can you believe? Can you believe this tomb has no rides? Yeah, you can't, you can't really make any of that up. <laughs> All right. Uh, I'm going to read this poem for all the educators in the room. Um, you know, especially at a time when people in our government want to build walls, I think educators, librarians, um, you have the power and the honor of um, pulling down those walls and opening up the world to people who may not have um, the opportunity to travel. And one of the things I love about books um, is just that ability to travel without ever leaving your chair um, and being able to um, get excited about this planet and to get excited about um, the hope that one day you can see these items um, that, you, that you read about in, in real life. Um, and one of, those, one of those teachers for me was, um, again, my fourth grade teacher. So I guess I did write about that that year, but in a different way. Um, and this is called Mr. Cass and the Crustaceans. Whales the color of milk have washed ashore in Germany, their stomachs clogged full of plastic and car parts. Imagine the splendor of a creature big as half a football field, the magnificence of the largest brain of any animal, modern or extinct. I have been trying to locate my fourth grade science teacher for years. Mr. Cass, who gave us each a crawfish he found just past the suburbs of Phoenix before strip malls licked every good desert with a cold blast of freon and glass. Mr. Cass, who played soccer with us at recess, who let me check on my wily snappy crawfish in the plastic blue pool before class started so I could place my face to the surface of the water and see if it still skittered alive. I hate to admit how much this meant to me, the only brown girl in the classroom, but I wish I could tell Mr. Cass how I've never stopped checking the waters, the ponds, the lakes, the sea. And I worry that I've yet to see a sperm whale, except when they've beached themselves in coves. How many songs must we hear from the sun How many songs must we hear from the sun-bleached bones of a seabird or whale? If there were anyone on earth who would know this, Mr. Cass, it's you. How even bottle caps found inside a baby albatross corpse can make a tiny ribcage whistle when the ocean wind blows through it just right. I know wherever you are, you'd weep if you heard the sad music. I think how you first taught us kids how to listen to water, and I'm so, so grateful for each story in its song. We'll return for the rest of Amy's event in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you about some ways you can join Sal for Great Poets this year no matter where you are. Our 2021 lineup includes readings by poets Maggie Smith, Natalie Diaz, Toy Derricotte, 
and Alberto Rios, and talks by poets Ocean Vuong and Douglas Kearney. Subscriptions and $10 digital passes for all events are available now at lectures.org. And now, more from Amy Nezukuma Tatil. This is a, a poem that doesn't appear in a, in a collection. It's a fairly new one. Um, uh, the poet Donica Kelly was, was uh, corralling some poems on um, this notion of chimeras, the, the kind of wished-for, impossible daydream. Um, and I think the only thing I can think about to write about this world that you wished for, um, and I thought maybe it was just a one-off thing. Hopefully it wouldn't happen again. And I'm sad to say that um, uh, I, wrote, I wrote this um, in, in a moment of terror um, with gun violence in schools, and I'm sad to say that I, it still keeps um, being appropriate. I'd like to one day be able to put away this, this poem. Um, so I decided to write about the terror that seizes me. And, you know, I live a, a pretty happy life overall. Um, but I, I was telling a friend the other day, I don't actually, I, I realize I don't actually fully breathe or I don't fully exhale until my children, I have two, ch two kids, um, a second grader and a fifth grader. I don't fully exhale until I know they're home. And that never used to happen before. Um, and uh, this is a poem called Next. Um, next, like this part. When my six-year-old son was painting birds during art class, his principal ordered a full lockdown because an armed man was spotted skulking nearby. When I got the news, I felt my heart throb in my neck. If you pushed a single finger to my arm, I would surely burst. Sometimes I think of baby toucans who fall out of their nests. Sometimes a person scoops them in the bucket of her shirt and brings these fallen birds, their necks not even feathered yet, to a vet. When toucans are babies, their beaks glow only the palest yellow. The famous rainbow has yet to bite, has yet to show. This is a poem called Two Moths. Some girls on the other side of this planet will never know the loveliness of walking in a crepe silk sari. Instead, they will spend their days on their backs for a parade of men who could be, would be their uncles in another life. These girls memorized each slight wobble of fan blade as it cuts through the stale tea air and auto rickshaw exhaust, thick as egg curry. Men shove greasy rupees at the door for one hour in a room with a 12-year-old. One hour. One hour. And if she cries afterward, her older sister can cover it up. She will rim the waterline of her eyes with coal pencil until it looks like two popinjay moths have stopped to rest for just a moment on her still, exquisite face. Uh, 
changing it up a little bit. Um, this is my last reading um, after a, an amazing, amazing year. Um, my last reading for the summer, anyway. Um, and uh, I wanted to dedicate this to my husband, who is also full-time teaching um, and has just been taking care of our, our kids. And he's an author, too. He had a book just come out last month, so I don't know how he does it. Um, and he never once complains. He doesn't complain at all. Um, I would be complaining if I was him. Um, so I wanted to give you just the visual just a little bit on this. I did a whole bunch of research. I traveled to, from carnival to carnival to get this right. Um, and Because people didn't actually know that this is a thing. But do they have this in Seattle um, where there's bee-wearing contests? where people wear bees for a contest to see how many... <laughs> do they do that? I know Seattle is so wacky and stuff. Do they? So? <laughs> okay, okay, so it's not just the Midwest. It's not just the Midwest. So that's a thing, in, in case you don't know. People can... Um, you have contests to see how many bees you can wear before you break or, you know, before you, like, say, stop, I'm out, you know, that kind of thing. And it's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. People train and train. Um, anyway, so... This is called, When I'm Away From You, I Feel Like the Second Place Winner in a Bee-Wearing Contest, who practiced all year only to lose to a guy whose every inch was covered in hum. And I'm in awe to learn one cheeky bee even clamored into the winner's sugared ear. Another slid into his nostril, and still... He stayed calm, didn't flip. He just waited for the bell to ring victory. But even 57 pounds of bees can't stop the music I hear when I return to you, the music I hear when you walk near me. Like I'm always carried in enough good sting and thrum to remember our life. I'll always return home to you, my honeycomb, my sweet, my one faithful and true buzz. <laughs> and I have just two more. This poem is in the shape of a, it's a Carmina Figurata poem. And what that is, is um, it's Latin for shaped song. So you might have heard that um, as a concrete poem before. Um, but I like, I like Carmina Figurata. Sounds a lot more um, lovely. Um, and so uh, I had my students write Carmina Figurata poems about their favorite food, just because I love reading about food. Um, and so I decided to join in. And this one is on spare ribs, which is my favorite food. I try to be vegetarian, and ribs get me all the time. So... <laughs> This is called Why I... And it's written in, this, in two columns, so um, it's in the shape of spare ribs. <laughs> this is called Why, Why I Crave Ribs Tonight. Baby, don't even come near me with that napkin. Just let me at each bone slick and sweet with smoky sugar sauce. See all the steam when I nudge all the meat off with my tongue? It's the only kind of cloud we see this lemonade day in June. All this driving, and I need to feel food in my hands. No knife or fork tonight. I want to burn my lips just enough, but not too much it hurts to kiss. And that reminds me of the glowing heart inside of me. How each rib curves around and locks tight in neat snaps along the back. 
Make your hand like that around my small wrist and lead me into the bathroom. Stand with me in the shower and feel the tender spot just underneath my ribs. Lift my hands above my head and trace the space bone, space bone, space bone, space bone down my sides with a blue bar of soap. Let this, let this be the only way I will ever come clean. Thank you. Thank you. And you know, I don't know, um, I didn't practice this ahead of time, so if we can't do this, it's fine. But um, in the back, um, Mr. Lights. Hi there. Is there a way? <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, that's what I tell my kids to say when, when we don't know someone's name. We give them Mr. and then what they do or Miss what they do. I'm sorry. I know your name is not Mr. Lights. Um, <laughs> can you? Is there a way to, to dim the lights but keep... A, a light here to dim the lights in the audience at all? If not, don't worry about it. Okay. Excellent, excellent. Perfect, perfect. Okay, now, so this is the last poem I'm going to read today before. Thank you so much. Thank you. What is your name? Ron. Ron. Thank you so much, Ron. <laughs> Let's give a round of applause for Ron. <laughs> All right. Um, and I know you were all told to put away your cell phones, that kind of thing. But can you guys do a thing? This is the last poem. Can you take out your cell phones and part, turn on the light from your cell phones? Rebecca mentioned the bioluminescent thing. And I just wanted to recreate what it's like to, hear, to see bioluminescent dinoflagellates in the ocean. Thank you. Yeah, if, you have, if you have a smartphone, go ahead and turn your light on. Oh, this looks so beautiful. Thank you, thank you. Oh, my goodness. I have to take a picture of this. This is so great. You guys are amazing. Ron, this is so great. <laughs> so wonderful. Okay. I just want you to imagine this. So, um, yeah, I just want you to imagine this is the ocean. And I wanted to also mention something, too. Um, a few years ago, when Toy Derricotte, the founder of Cave Canem, was given an award at the National Book Awards, she mentioned this quote that I've never been able to get out of my head. She said, joy is an act of resistance. And I love that so much. I wish I came up with it first. But joy is an act of resistance. And the more I keep thinking about it, I wanted to just mention, too, I'm a child of, like, the late 70s, 80s. I never grew up with books or anything in pop culture that showed anybody who looked like me having any amount of joy. If there was any Asian American depicted in books or movies or TVs or music videos, um, they were the, like, the, the butt of the joke or someone named Long Duck Dong that was an actual character. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Well, who, what character was Long, or what movie was Long Duck Dong in? Sixteen Candles, yes, you guys know it. Or it was some like suicidal dragon lady who was evil, pure evil. There was nobody who even remotely looked like me um, who had crushes on boys or who just was happy or actually who loved nature. So for the longest time I was thinking, gosh, are Asian Americans not supposed to be outside or appreciate nature or something like that? So it was this weird kind of erasure. And when you grow up and grow up and internalize seeing nothing around you in books and literatures, again, movies, TVs, where there was not a single Asian American woman who was enjoying herself outside, it makes you feel like 
this outsider or that you're not, you're doing something weird if you love the outside. And that was me. I was, I was the girl who loved being outside. I loved having names for stuff. I mentioned that I lived around, um, I, I moved around a lot in and, and various mental health hospitals. And um, I was never lonesome, though. It was always because my parents took me outside and taught me the names of things. So I could identify catalpa, chuparosa, um, so, you know, all various different kind of cacti. From second grade on, I could look up at the sky and identify any constellation, so I never felt lonesome. But books and pop culture was telling me that I was the weirdo for not, you know, um, because I just never saw it depicted. So for me, it was being Asian American. For you, whatever the case is, be it orientation, um, economic, socioeconomic class, anything, if you don't see that depicted in books or poems or uh, movies, Try to make that or encourage or give money to people who make that kind of art um, because it's just, it's 2018. And um, I think to express joy and to express a love for beauty is not um, an easy thing to do this year, but we must, we must. So um, thank you, thank you, thank you. So this is my last poem before we chat here, and thank you for indulging me with these little lights. This is called Invitation. Come in, come in, the water is fine. You can't get lost here. Even if you wanted to hide behind a clutch of spiny oysters, I'll find you. If you ever leave me at night by boat, you'll see the arrangement of golden sun stars in a sea of milk, and though it's tempting to visit them, Stay. <laughs> I've been trained to look up and up all my life, no matter the rumble on earth, but I've learned it's okay to glance down once in a while into the sea. So many lessons bubble up if you just know where to look. Clouds of plankton hurricaning and open whale mouths will send you east, and chewy urchins can slide you west. Squid know how to be rich with ten empty arms. There are humans who don't know the feel of a good bite or embrace at least once a day. Underneath you, narwhals spin upside down while their singular tooth needles you like a compass pointed towards home. And deep where imperial volutes and hatchetfish live, colors humans have not yet named glow in caves made from black coral and clamshell. A giant squid just, yes, just last year let itself be captured in a photograph, and the paper nautilus ripple flashes scarlet and two kinds of violet when it silvers you near. Who knows what'll happen next? If you still want to look up, I hope you see the dark sky as oceanic, boundless, limitless, like all the shades of blue revealed in a glacier. Let's listen. Let's really listen how this planet hums with so much wing, so much fur, and fin. Thank you so much. That was absolutely incredible. I have to say, I don't think I've ever felt more like a sea creature until 
that moment. Um, thank you so much, Amy. Um, if, ever, if anyone has questions, I think in the program, there is a place for you to, to write them down. And um, I believe the ushers can gather your questions, and I can um, be a kind of conduit um, sure. to your brain. Um, so I'm uh, super excited to, to chat with you. I feel a little tingly after the reading, so I'm a little bit kind of like trying to <laughs> gather my human it was self. The dark light is the dark light. <laughs> yes. Um, but as we're kind of gathering some, some questions um, from the audience, um, maybe I can start with a question for, for Amy. Um, I wasn't actually planning to start with this question, but I think you ending with that poem and um, saying that you never really saw yourself reflected in the literature that you're reading kind of hit me on a, a very personal level. Um, when I was growing up, um, as a young uh, child, I mostly lived in the, the, the public library. Mm. And what I would actually do with these books and stories I didn't see myself in, I would actually write alternative <laughs> stories and endings and characters and slip them into the library books oh, okay. uh, for future children. <laughs> um, but I just felt really kind of close to that, that kind mm. of connection to kind of rewriting the story and um, joyous activism. And I wanted to kind of ask you a little bit about um, how you see that kind of joy um, in resistance um, via specifically your kind of images. I'm so always full of joy when I read the, the images, especially the ones of, of animals. Um, how, do you, how do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. Um, well, thank you, thank you. Um, I think... You know, I've just been, you know, you mentioned uh, solace was found for you in libraries. Um, and I would, I would say the same for me, you know. I mean, I, I definitely, actually, you know, it makes it sound like I had a weird kind of childhood. Um, now that I mentioned I'd lived in various mental health institutions. <laughs> but actually, I will say, too, that once my friends found out that I lived there, they were so excited to come over. So we actually had kids over all the time. Um, and so it wasn't lonesome in that way. It just felt lonesome in that, um, it felt lonesome in that the stuff I loved, I didn't see myself in, you know, that kind of thing. So yeah. um, I loved reading, I've been reading about the giant squid since I was six. So when it, when it finally appeared in a photograph last year, I mean, it was just a life, you know, tracking the squid down since I was little. So, um, I don't, it sounds, it sounds ridiculous and precious to say, but that has been my vocabulary since I was mm. young. So it's not, uh, it's not anything I try to. If anything, it's, I'm trying to um, make it palatable for everybody. My husband is, a, is, a, is very fond of saying, I mean, you know, not everybody enjoys watching Madagascar cockroaches <laughs> give birth, you know. Um, so you might have to just set up the poem a little bit, you know, or something like that. Um, uh, and I'm like, what? Doesn't everybody spend their Friday night watching cockroaches give birth? Like, and, uh, you know, so if anything, I have to just remind myself that not everybody gets excited about the planet the way I do. But um, I don't know if that answers your question enough. But it's just I have the vocabulary and I have the um, excitement for it since I was little. And, and nobody ever told me. My parents never said, you must read this book on um, cuttlefish. It's just what I was drawn to. Because I also didn't see, I definitely didn't see myself in um, literature. Mm -hmm. And I think science was a way to kind of escape. At least mm -hmm. it was kind of, 
everybody was on even terms, but it was always so disappointing when I turned to the back page and see the person who wrote this, the person who I felt a soul connection with was nothing like me, you know, mm -hmm. that kind of thing, so... Yeah. I think that's really meaningful, mm. um, especially I think there's a lot of expectations for, I think, um, at least as an Asian American oh, sure. writer to like, where are the chopsticks in your poem? <laughs> yeah. Or yeah, like, yeah. is this Asian American? Yeah, Can't yeah. it be about also nature yeah, and yeah. other things that you feel deeply passionate about, too? Um, I find powerful. Um, I had a question a little bit about kind of thinking of, uh, there is there's a moment um, in your kind of work that I've, well, it's throughout the, the kind of book, um, and I'm always struck by how the language is so uh, synesthetic. Mm. So thinking about, does anybody have this condition where you have mixed senses? Um, mm. I always feel like there's always one person that has this when they're like, I don't know, like you see a I'm color so <laughs> while reading. Mm. But I feel like your work has mm. such a, uh, a, a magical texture to it? Are there, like, almost, like, particular words have a soundscape to them? I'm thinking about even, um, I think this is in the poem where you talk about the penny taste of, like, the garden hose. Mm -hmm. Like, can you all, like, taste that and smell that? Like, it's just so visceral. So I'm just curious. I know we have a lot of writers in the audience, too. Like, how do you make these synesthetic super visceral images, it sounds like magic. Like, mm. I don't know if you pull it out of a hat, mm. but it's, it's, mm. it's very imaginative. I'm just curious as a, you know, curious writer, like how, mm. what happens in your brain to make all those senses click? goodness um thank you thank you i don't it's hard for me i'm very self-conscious of um you know trying to say like what is my you know um the the question and i and i love the question um it's so great in theory it's just so hard for me to answer you know because it's almost like how do you write in some ways um and i and I, what i will say though is a tangible answer um i will say that um because I grew up in predominantly um, white classrooms, so much of my life has been explaining. Like, um, uh, I will say that, you know, a, a previous place of employment, um, it was just a, a very routine situation where I would have, um, you know, these are other professors who ought to know better. They would routinely see me and be like, namaste, Amy. <laughs> and also... <laughs> I'm Catholic, by the way, so... Um, oh, my gosh. Or at least laughs Catholic. I'm actually... Yeah, anyway, so... Um, <laughs> I, 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 and, so and, I would, and I would just... So something like that where I would have to say, like, actually, I'm not Hindu, or mm. actually, um, every time you say namaste to me, I actually feel opposite of namaste. I don't have, <laughs> I don't have any peace when you tell me that. Um, and I say it with a smile, you know, always trying to make them not feel uncomfortable, but they would purposely do it. Mm. Or they would purposely butcher my name as a joke. Mm. Um, and I, you know, and it just got to be the point um, in classroom situations where people would say, can you, exp I don't understand that India could be pretty. Can you put some more poverty in it? Or that's an actual quote. Um, or, you know, I don't know. I, when I think of the Philippines, I just think of the red light district. So I don't know. This doesn't seem right mm. to me. Um, you know, and so all my l educational life, I've been explaining something. And um, it just turned out 
especially with the culmination of Oceanic, I was just done explaining. Yeah. <laughs> Except for the fact that I, the one thing that I'm not sick of explaining, but I try to not do it in a like science-splaining way, is that I'm so in love with the inhabitants of this planet uh, from the animal and plant world, and I never tire of talking about that. So it's my way, I guess it's my way... Um, on a craft level, it's explaining, but it's like, I want you to fall in love with this particular starfish the way I have fallen in love with it. Or the, if you could see a little tiny bit of humanity in this bestiary of a cockroach, the kind of the worst thing that Anne Sexton famously said, um, oh, what, I, I'm gonna butcher her. Um, yeah, she has an epigraph, I used an epigraph. Anne Sexton famously said, when I turn on the light, you scuttle into the corners and there is this hiss upon the land. Like, <laughs> and I'm like, what? I love cockroaches. In theory, again, like, I, don't, I don't want them in my house. I don't want them in my kitchen. But um, so, and that's a big job to do in a poem is to make you fall in love with something like a cockroach. But mm -hmm. I think that is... Um, you know, Ann Carson, or Ann Carson, Rachel Carson, um, yeah. one of my f ultimate heroes from the science world, um, says the, the more um, we get to know about, the, I'm butchering the, the quote, but the more we get to know and learn about the planet, the less appetite we have for destruction. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely believe that. Like, the more you get to know about these plants and creatures on it, or people, you just don't want to hurt them anymore. You just don't want to, you know what I mean? It's just... I don't know, I'm, I'm probably preaching to the, to the crowd here, but um, I really truly believe I teach nature writing and environmental literature, and even the most, you know, like, pulling the hat down frat boys who say, I, I'm not taking this class for anything but credit, I hate nature. Um, <laughs> and they actually tell that to me on the first day. They come out and are just like, you know, Professor Nez, you know, I, I was out watching um, birds with my mom and I saw a summer tanager. Can you believe this? And I was like, wait a minute, you know what a summer tanager is now? You know, and, um, and that's something that hopefully they'll have for the rest of their lives. But mm. if you were to ask them this back in January, they would have been like, hell to the no. Am I, you know, am I bird watching with my mom or something like that? So I just feel like if, if I can give a little bit of gentleness to some part of somebody who's reading this towards an animal or a plant, then maybe, maybe that's something um, that they could take away from this book, you know? I feel that's yeah. very kind of transformative. <laughs> I think about that kind of, um, I think it's Marianne Moore, the imaginary gardens with the real yes. uh, toads mm -hmm, in them, mm -hmm. um, where it, almost like the animal becomes more of the animal based on your yeah. language, like yeah. how you're describing. I mean, if you think about bees, like bees are extraordinary by themselves. Like mm -hmm. they don't need poetry to make them extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. But weirdly enough, poetry makes them more extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think your language does that. Mm -hmm. Just the idea of being kind of like the bees going inside of your body, like mm -hmm. everything is feels so transformative and mm. I'm so grateful for, for you. your work. And that's, again, tied back to what it means to, to be mindful, mm -hmm. I think, in this world. Um, and I have a question from the audience that um, was great because I actually had this question myself. <laughs> um, and I think it has a lot to do maybe with that mindfulness or mm -hmm. kind of, I noticed with, uh, I love the one-star reviews <laughs> um, of these I places. can't take credit for those, the, the <laughs> content of the poems. Though, <laughs> yeah, but 
you can take credit for mm-hmm. your mindfulness for finding them. Mm-hmm. And I think that, um, you know, this question is about, like, what is your writing practice in terms of uh, research like? Like, how do you find the the kind of wonders of the world, these materials, these types of found poems? Like, mm-hmm. what do you... Um, yeah, what does your research process look like? What do you do when you, um, I don't know, hang out with these animals? (laughs) Sure, sure. Um, Just on a practical note, um, going back to that nerdy 10-year-old Amy, I love reading, and my dirty little secret is, is that as much as I read poetry, I actually read nonfiction the most. So I read a lot of poetry, but I read even more, almost maybe double the nonfiction and natural history and... um, Field guides. I mean, I know how nerdy this sounds, but my <laughs> idea of a good time is like, if there's a new field guide of something, I am there, you know, um, sitting by the fire reading it, you know. Oh, look at all these shell names. I mean, they're just, they're so extraordinary. There's a fun to say on your tongue, mm. the crack, crackle, snap, and pop of these um, animal and plant names. And um, I think it was, you know, I mean, I, I don't ever sit out, today I will write a poem about um, the narwhal or something, Mm -hmm. you know, like that. But because I'm reading so much about it, I don't know what I'm going to, like, I've never set out to say I'm going to read about, write about this animal or this plant. But I'm reading so much, so it could be something, many of the poems that are in here were books that I had read or animals or plants that I have encountered years ago, but they just pop up because that's in my metaphor toolkit now because I've been reading about them or because I've been visiting them. And I will say that every animal and plant has been triple fact-checked in there. I've got, I mean, <laughs> as early as even today, I was chatting with a cephalopod expert at the Seattle Aquarium just to make sure I got this completely right. Um, and uh, so I, I do... I do just chat with people. Even if I wasn't writing a book, I love just speaking with scientists. So I always loved the idea of being a scientist. I didn't want to be responsible of, for doing the I actual hear that. work. I love the language of it. So I would sit in lecture halls and I'd be hearing hexavalent chromium and I'd be just loving the music of it mm. or finding a metaphor for that and I wouldn't miss the whole point of the <laughs> lecture. So that also is another reason why I should never have been um, on, at all on track to be a doctor. But... So um, I'm I'm just reading an awful lot about it, but on any given day, my desk is is filled with is filled with science books and mm. um, or memoirs. I was reading the memoirs of a sword swallower, um, how she contorts her uh, throat to accommodate swords um, without being cut. And I'm sure I'm not going to necessarily write about how to swallow swallow a sword, but I might just get something from there two years from now, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm just always that hungry, curious girl to know about the world, to travel again without leaving your chair, you know. Yeah, that's, it reminds me what you said about your parents saying that you are a forever student. Like, Mm -hmm. there's a obvious, like, a love for continual learning. Like, Mm -hmm. there's a bit of, I don't know, kind of... uh, obsessive maybe joy in a good way um, of kind of like wanting to to know Mm -hmm. more about the world including uh, kind of going towards what you you don't know and sometimes what you don't know can be terrifying oh yeah oh my gosh Lucille Wonder or Lucille Wonder Lucille Clifton um, one of my poetry northern stars um, says I don't write out of what I don't write what I know I write what I wonder Um, Mm -hmm. and I and I love that you know like um, of course 
you know, they t I think a lot of times people tell a beginning writer, write what you know, write what you know. That's a great step. But then afterwards, I, I think it's great, you know, it's better to turn that lens outward to, and make you get hungry to, to do that research, to learn about another culture, to learn about another animal or a plant that you didn't know, you know, to be able to say, I know these trees in Seattle, you know, by sight or by smell or something like that, mm -hmm. you know. I kind of shame my students. Like, if you, you know, I live in Mississippi now. Um, if you can't identify a magnolia, our state tree, <laughs> shame on you. And I have no qualms about saying that. And then it becomes, you know, again, it becomes like, and I say it with a smile, you know, mm -hmm. but um, it becomes like they don't want to be, um, you know, the one who doesn't know how to identify a magnolia. And then they tell their girlfriend or their friend or their roommate, you know, and that kind of thing. So, I mean, I, it's just... It's again, it's like what we are willing to put value on. Are we willing to put value on knowing the plants and animals around us? People used to do that all the time. Just even in the last 10 years, the number of students who could identify for me the difference between a magnolia and a sugar maple has decreased so much. Has decreased. That's two vastly different trees. Um, <laughs> but because they're inside all the time or when they're crossing campus, they're plugged in. They're looking at their phones. Yeah. They're not taking note of, oh, look at the magnolias are in bloom right now. Mm. Or, you know, that kind of thing. They don't even have that vocabulary. Mm. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think that that's, I'm guilty of that too. The thing is, like, I, I have, to, it's actually a, it feels like to me, um, like an act one has to, to take yeah. in order to be mindful. Oh, it's very purposeful. It's very purposeful because Everybody, I mean, this world, this society, this government wants you to not notice beauty, wants right. you to not take time and actually daydream and actually imagine a world that is kind and good and beautiful. Mm -hmm. So you have to be purposeful in doing it. Nobody's mm -hmm. going to lead you to it. I can only do so much for my students, but ultimately, after the class, they have to also do it. So what I tell my students is be able to identify by sight five birds, five trees, Five animals that are in your town. That just start there. That's an, everybody can do that. All of us can do that in this class, in this auditorium. Start with do five. your homework, everyone. <laughs> start with five, and I, and I don't mean it at all to like shame anybody, but if you don't know five trees in Seattle, five animals that are from Seattle, five flowers, or you know what I mean? That's that's something that at base, at minimum, we all can do. And it's free, it's free to learn. You don't need equipment, you don't need electricity. That's something that we could all do to just be a little bit, um, also to be a little, not, not just tender with the planet, but to be tender with ourselves. There's something that's so healing and I can't even put it into words and I'm a poet, mm. but there is something that is so tender to yourself once you can identify, oh, that is a summer tanager. Where that is, you know, you have the name and the vocabulary um, for the, the different kinds of clams that are here in Seattle, you know, that kind of thing. Um, so do it for yourself. Don't just say, I'm doing it for the planet. Do it for yourself to be tender with yourself. Be gentle Ooh, with yourself. That's maybe a good place to hold. Um, <laughs> good, the, good be thing. tender to yourself mm -hmm. and be tender to the world around you. Um, wow. Uh, thank you so much, Amy, for, for being here. Thank I, you, James. Um, thank you all for also being here, too. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Thank you so much to Amy Nezhu Kumatatil and Jane Wong for joining us on the South Stage and here on our podcast. Thanks as well to the Seattle Arts and Lecture staff, board, and community. And thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, make sure to subscribe from wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, rate and review us five stars so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.